Hey friends, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Michael Carey, and today I'd like to share with you an interview that we did for the Marriage Mastery Summit. Ann Nelson of Fully Thriving Ministry interviewed us for this summit back in March 2020. I think you'll really enjoy listening to this interview as we explore how unwanted sexual behavior affects the marriage relationship. The original summit was found at themarriagemasterysummit.fullythriving.com. You can find more information about Ann Nelson and the resources that she offers at fullythriving.com. Hi, Anne with Fully Thriving here with Michael and Kristen Carey. They're the founders of Living Truth Ministries. Welcome so much. I appreciate you coming here today to, to speak with me. Thank you, Anne. Thanks. We're so grateful to have the chance to be with you today. Yes, good to be here. Now, you work with um, people who have struggled with uh, sexual addiction, infidelity, it, and sexual addiction, and pornography, and their spouses, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And that's what we get to talk about today. Yes. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. This is such an important topic. Um, and one that people often hold under their hat for a long time and until it causes big, big problems. And so hopefully, as we talk today, whomever's listening might be able to know how they could either help themselves, their spouse, or a friend or family member through a very difficult season. So yeah. What are some of the common uh, routes to sexual portrayal and marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it, I, I would. Um, I would say first uh, that we uh, mostly deal with the, um, the the scenario where the man is um, uh, unfaithful or looking at pornography or whatever it is. He's taking his sexuality outside of his marriage, and Kristen works with the wife. But that's not always the case, of course. You know, there mm-hmm. we've seen many cases where uh, a wife has uh, um, had a had an affair or and so mm-hmm. on, or a porn addiction. Um, or that's porn becoming addiction. more and more common for women. For for younger generations, it's definitely more and more. But um, so so thinking um, the bigger percentage is going to be males that are taking their sexuality outside of marriage. Uh, the first thing to consider is that this begins way before a guy ever even meets his spouse, unless he meets her when he's eighteen months old. You know, um, because the so the root cause the root cause of sexual addiction and just about any addiction is pretty pretty much the same, and it's toxic shame. Um, messages that I'm I'm bad, and uh, the, these kind of messages begin in childhood, whether it's uh, from a caregiver, babysitter, maybe it's parents, siblings, childhood bullies, and so on. Uh, as we're growing up, uh, we gather more negative messages than positive messages about ourselves. So this message that that I'm bad or or I'm flawed, um, it's a, a kind of a shame that's uh, self-defining and self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And you, um, uh, so I'm and I'm talking from my own personal journey as well. This this is my story, uh, mm-hmm. and the story of so many men that I've seen and helped uh, in ministry. So, uh, moving throughout um, adolescence, uh, extremely important. Um, oh, let me back up for a second. The reason I said <laughs> starting in 18 months, um, that is what most people would agree when a boy 
starts to move a little bit away from mom and more towards dad, you know, mm-hmm. and if dad, if dad is uh, traveling a lot for work, you know, um, a lot of this can be innocent, you know, on the parents part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know what we don't know when we're parents <laughs> trying to raise children. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so 18 months old, a uh, boy starts to begin to need his dad to bestow his masculinity uh, upon him and and help him uh, become the man and and I speak from our uh, vantage point as uh, believers in Christ as Christians you know uh, a father's job is to help his son become figure out and become the man that God intended him to become mm-hmm. so so these uh, so through adolescence um, uh, we struggle with identity and um, and then on throughout our teen years and and into our 20s uh, at some point along the way we begin to soothe these messages of I'm bad um, with porn and masturbation and uh, for many many Christian men I've seen that have gone into affairs and uh, prostitution uh, where, where they're soliciting prostitutes you know and, and paying for sex mm. and and this uh, so that's why this becomes uh, or this starts way before a man ever even meets his his spouse so the um so that that's that's kind of uh simplifying it you know in many ways we're we're the origins uh, of this issue and then uh, as a as a guy is using porn um uh, mostly for christians that uh we we say that we, you know, we 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 have our beliefs and and values, um, and we're crossing the line uh, and and doing the things that we uh, don't want to do or or don't like, you know, uh, we we don't like the man in the mirror and 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 his behavior and so on. Um, it just causes more shame, more messages that I'm bad, you know. Sure. Um, and shame so. makes us want to hide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Most definitely. And I think it's so valuable that you said that, that it starts at 18 months to, to recognize that if there's a couple right now that's dealing with this, that's listening to us, that it's no one partner's fault. Whoever is the person that's struggling, their partner is not to blame. It's not their lack of ability to give or be present. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's very interesting to me because addiction seems to be and correct me if, if I'm wrong, it seems addiction is addiction is addiction. Like whether it's alcohol, whether it's porn, whether it's video games, it's an escape in yes. from the shame and the negative feelings that we're feeling. Yeah. And it, it really has, I don't want to say little to do with sexuality, but in some way, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, you're right. It is a little, it has very little to do with sex. Um, and the differences between this type of addiction from the other substances is that those substances are not a part of who we are, but our sexuality is really a part of who we are. So, so I think the level of toxic shame for yeah. somebody with a sexual addiction is higher mm-hmm. than the other addictions mm-hmm. because sure. of that tie right. to identity and who we are yeah i mean i can i can uh stop drinking alcohol i can stop smoking cigarettes or using narcotics whatever it is mm-hmm. um and and i can still live my life but most people uh do not detach from their sexuality and if they do way. that's not healthy either you know right. it's, it's yeah. healthy you can be healthy right how you handle your sexuality yeah so and i love what you said about it's not the, it's not the spouse's fault at all but most partners 
of somebody with a sexual addiction or sexual brokenness in some way do blame themselves. And I love to tell the women that I work with who are the partner of the addict that yeah. the three C's, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. Mm, that's so handy. Definitely. That's so good. So let's talk a little bit about the impact on the partners and the children. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you help us understand what's happening for the rest of the family? Yes. So this is another big difference between sexual addiction and other addictions is that the level of shame that a spouse or a partner carries is significantly higher because typically she has been involved sexually in her marriage. And oftentimes somebody with a sex addiction or with sexually compulsive behavior outside the marriage either becomes Uh, sexually anorexic in the marriage. And so they no longer desire to have sex with their spouse, which is obviously a problem and very painful for that spouse. Or sometimes they are hypersexual in the marriage, but in a way that is more using and controlling and demanding rather than the mutual give and take that sex is supposed to be in a marriage. So I am so thankful that recently in the last 15 years, there's been research done on the impact on partners by Dr. Barb Steffens and Marsha Means. They wrote a book called Your Sexually Addicted Spouse. Mm -hmm. And that research and that information has turned the tide for how we help partners of sexual addicts or people with problematic sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. And we now know that these partners are traumatized. Many of them have all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And when somebody is traumatized like that, they can look and act crazy, but they're not crazy. They're traumatized. Right. And in, especially in the church, we tend to isolate sexual issues as a moral or spiritual issue rather than looking at it as from an addiction lens and a betrayal lens. We mm-hmm. tend to want to manage these behaviors and tell people to just stop it and tell the spouse to just lose some weight or be more available or all kinds of toxic messages that people come to us having received. So we are, we are shooting our wounded. Um, But the reality is that the the spouse and the children need a lot of love and a lot of support. And we, that's part of why in our ministry, one of the big cornerstones of what we do is run groups for men who struggle with unwanted sexual behavior for women who have had sexual indiscretions, and then also for partners who have experienced betrayal trauma. And we've also started a group specifically for daughters whose dads have had some kind of sexual addiction or, or infidelity, because a lot of people would think, well, why, why would you do something like that for the daughters? Well, some of these girls have stumbled upon their dad's pornography, and it has traumatized them. Or they've been blackmailed by a dad's affair partner you know, and, and have had some of this trauma bleed into their own life and they need support Mm -hmm. to be able to process how this has impacted them too. Yeah. Well, understanding that, um, uh, you know, a young, a young girl may, uh, look up to her father and, um, maybe even idealize him, but, Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is just, um, uh, seeing him in one light and then, uh, figuring out that he is not, that man, he's living a double life as well. And there's uh, this dark side. Um, I'm 
you know, I'm sure that that causes a lot of trust issues mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. a young lady, you know, as far as trusting men. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. It causes an identity crisis for the children and for the partner. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would, I would think as I'm thinking about what you're saying, I would think that for young men, children, you know, the, the sons of, of people, if it's the father figure, for instance, would struggle, um, be, even if they didn't know, because dad's emotionally unavailable, because dad's moving his emotions with the addiction. Is that? Yes. Oh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even without them knowing there's an impact, dad's not available or mom's not available, whoever it is. That's For right. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, and we have Barbara Stefan on this uh, summit as oh, well. So thank you so awesome. much for joining her. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. it's an honor. So tell me, um, it sounds very sad and gloomy. Is there mm -hmm. hope for the oh, couple going through this? Absolutely, yeah. there is hope. We see couples' marriages restored all the time. Like we, it's we regularly, and we just launched a podcast. We're going to have lots of stories of hope of couples who have rebuilt their lives and their marriages. Because part of what keeps people stuck in shame and in silence mm -hmm. of the secret is the belief that if they come clean, they will lose everything. And to be clear, people do lose a lot. They lose reputation. Some people lose jobs. There are a lot of losses for both the partner and the person who has had the unwanted sexual behavior. But to come clean and to rebuild, and it's not really so much that the marriage gets saved it usually dies and gets reborn yeah i don't mean necessarily divorce right. but it's like right. the old relationship has to yeah. be considered dead and proclaimed dead because the person that that the spouse thought that the person with the addiction was that's not been reality and so it's a very long arduous disorienting process a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but with hard work on both parts, a good recovery program for both, which mm -hmm. really is painful for the spouse that's been impacted because they feel like, oh my gosh, why do I have to do work because of what he's done? But the reality is if, if he ran into you with his car and flipped your vehicle and you were tossed out into a ditch, you would go to the ER and you would yeah. have to go to PT. And that, I mean, it's, okay. it's not your fault, but it's still, if you want to be put back together, you're going to have to surrender to a process and it sucks. And there's a lot of grieving involved with that. Mm -hmm. But um, when we equip the spouse with ways to start to feel safe in a fundamentally unsafe situation, and we help her navigate the decisions she can make to increase her sense of safety yeah. and stability, and then give her knowledge and tools and a lot of love and support and a safe place to talk about what she's going through with no filters and no judgment. Mm -hmm. And we give the person that has had the addiction or the infidelity support that they need to peel back the layers of the onion and discover what are the root issues? How did I get here? Yeah. How can I live my life with integrity and honesty? How can I build true intimacy with my spouse? Mm -hmm. We find that the vast majority of couples that come through our doors, their mm -hmm. marriages are saved. And, mm -hmm. and become resurrected in a way that they're way better than they ever were before. Yeah. It's pretty phenomenal. That sounds yeah. So that's, that's amazing. There's so many things that are going through my, my mind right now. So one of which that you mentioned both, in both of your answers is the whole concept of PTSD for the partner. And the reality is, is when we go through something like that, we're stuck in our amygdala. We're not mm -hmm. thinking with our prefrontal cortex. And I think that's so important both for the, 
the spouse of the the addicted um, partner, as well as for their community to understand. Because like you said, they can, in the process, they might not get the help they need because they could be dismissed as part of the problem. Absolutely. Instead of understanding that there's really, no, this is, if you have a car accident like you just described, there's also a brain trauma in this that needs to be healed. Mm-hmm. And I also love the fact that you said grieving. Mm-hmm. Because when you stood at the altar, you never, ever expected this. This was not part of the agenda you had for your life and for your family. And so there's the grieving of that old marriage that has to die that you mentioned. And I love that you said that and holding space for that. Yeah. You know, and I'd also like to say, like, not every marriage is saved. In fact, part of why I do this work is because I was married and in full-time Christian ministry. And my first husband had a sexual addiction that I discovered about two years into the marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, He repeatedly crossed the flesh line and was addicted to pornography. And that marriage was a casualty of sexual addiction. So it is not all just hope and promises because the reality is it takes, it takes a lot of work for the addict to recover. And for whatever reason, for many complex reasons, not everybody recovers, but I love I don't love that my story is what it is, but I love how God has brought beauty out of such a difficult situation and that I can actually stand in front of the women that I lead and be like, you know, I went through what I thought was the unimaginable, unimaginable, what I thought would kill me. The pain felt like it would literally destroy me. And Mm -hmm. I not only lived to tell you about it, but I am better than I've ever been before because I had to do a lot of hard work to heal. But in the process, God rebuilt me into something even stronger and more beautiful. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I know Barbara uh, Stefan talked about um, the challenge for the addicted partner with empathy. Is that, is that something you've seen? Can you talk into that a little bit? What's maybe even more specifically, if there's the partner right now who's listening, who Mm -hmm. just doesn't have empathy, maybe they feel like they've stopped the behavior, but they're still struggling with the empathy piece. What should they be doing? You mean what should the addict be doing or what should the partner be doing? Uh, Both. At this moment, I was thinking the addict. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think from um, the guys that I've worked with and my own own personal story, um, I think that we are, uh, as men, challenged in the area of empathy maybe from the beginning <laughs> um and that uh it's if it's not modeled to us you know growing up and so on but um when it comes to um being wrapped up in addictive behavior and living a double life and having these secrets you know and then and then having this uh truth come out and telling your your wife um, uh, and unloading this in, in the, we'll talk about like a disclosure and how, how we would uh, suggest it happen as far as, um, this confession, but, um, the impact that, that this, uh, that someone's behavior has on another human being and seeing their family go through this crisis, uh, and this devastation, uh, for many men, uh, it also kind of freezes them, uh, when it comes to empathy, because, because, um, we can, default to defensiveness um 
and it's oh, and all uh, that shame gets activated too and and just all of the shame mm -hmm. of of the damage um and and in the beginning you know it's uh, for for a lot of men they might they might not really understand that there is a lot of hope uh that the marriage can survive and in fact it can be even better uh, than it ever was, but it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of hard work, like Kristen said. So uh, what do you do? You know, empathy, I think um, this is what I tell guys um, after they have experienced uh, uh, this this disclosure to their spouse, um, do everything that she asks you to do, except kill yourself. If she asks you to do that, don't do that. You could say no, but um, I think that's where empathy would begin when she asks mm -hmm. for something just say yes, you know. Um, having empathy for where she is uh, means caring for her needs and her emotions and and um, uh, taking ownership, you know. So rather than, um, uh, so I think that's a great place to start. Rather than, than uh, become defensive, just uh, don't say anything at all. I think it's better than being defensive, you know. Um, so, so I think that's just just uh, moving towards empathy, and then just understanding, uh, asking your questions. What is it that you need? Mm -hmm. uh, what can I do for you? How can I help you feel safe? Mm -hmm. um, and those, uh, so that so the empathy of uh, where she is at, and what she's experiencing and going through. Um, we've heard so many so many partners tell their addicted, you know, husband. Um, I don't know who you are anymore. Um, I'm afraid that uh, you have done something to our children. Mm -hmm. uh, their life is completely turned upside down. So um, don't take offense to that. Um, understand, and like you were talking about, when it comes to PTSD, uh, there they there are times when they're triggered where they don't have the capacity to have rational thought. So uh, a lot of a lot of partners are going to say things maybe that they don't they don't necessarily mean. Mm -hmm. So understand that you know in, in each each moment is going to be different. I teach guys you know one day she's going to want to slit your throat and she's telling you that it's over, and the next day she might say I think there's hope, and the next day she's going to say I'm going to kill you again, and then the next day she says there might be some hope for this, and it's a roller coaster. So just understand that that is your new reality it is it's the reality as far as and, and as long as uh it's going to take for her to heal so so um so empathy under you know as as a man is just just interacting with his spouse um in in all of these scenarios understand that uh um that whatever you know her behavior looks like just uh saying i'm going to be here for you i'm not leaving uh i'm going to take care of you i'm going to help you through this i'm so sorry that i've done this to you yes you know i'm so sorry that i did this i'm so sorry i brought this into the marriage uh, i'm committed i'm committed to uh, working on myself um so i think all of those can be empathy is there anything i missed no, I think that was a perfect explanation. Two great resources are Help Her Heal by Carol Jorgensen Sheets. Th these are resources for the person with the addiction. Right. And the other one is Worthy of Her Trust by Jason Martinkus. Okay, wonderful. wonderful. And I think Brene Brown has a lot of great stuff. Oh, yeah, empathy she has as a great well. empathy short video on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Okay. Um, 
so how about for the wife or the one that's not addicted? What, what can, what should she be doing if she's noticing this lack of empathy? So she can request that he work on that. And sometimes I tell women, like, if he doesn't have it yet, then don't go to the hardware store to buy bread. So, because it's not there, they don't carry it in stock, right? So while Great analogy. You need, you need empathy. So come to me, come to the women in your group. Get, yeah. You need empathy. You need to get it. But while he's working on it and developing it, don't try to keep forcing him to give it to you. Give him some space and some time. Some women need a therapeutic separation for a period of time because I tell them it's, I, I use a lot of physical analogies like the car wreck one mm -hmm. for women because <laughs> they're so disoriented inside of what is happening to me. And it's so different from like a real literal car wreck where you, you're like, oh, I know what happened to me. This, this, I have broken bones and they can like explain it. But this, you're, there are often no physical markers on the outside, but their body is, it, it's, their amygdala is firing, cortisol, adrenaline, their heart's racing, they can't sleep. There are physical symptoms, but mm. it's extremely disorienting. So I, I help women understand like, you, here's what's happening to you. And an analogy is you have third degree burns all over your body and he's the one that held the blowtorch and gave them to you. So mm. perhaps if, if him being around you is just too painful because he's not able to give you empathy, perhaps you need some space, like you wouldn't want to be touched if you had third degree burns. So that does not signify a failure or an end of the marriage, but sure. it signifies a, a space and a time for healing. And that is often necessary if he is not ready to give her empathy. Yeah. Can we be practical for a minute and think about what, what would that separation, what are, in my mind, I can think of a few different ways that might look. Can we talk about that? What might that separation look like? So especially if there's young children in the home, often a woman is like, I am not separating. That would be a punishment to me. Mm -hmm. And so- And maybe a relief to him if he's not caring for his children as much. So an in-house in separation. Is often the case a, with young children. Okay. It really is up to the woman. I mean, part of what all, the trauma of all of this is how disempowering it is to her because she had no choice. Right. in all of this happening. So helping her see her choices and her options is very empowering. So some do an in-house separation, some have an out-of-house separation. There's also the financial aspect of can a family swing that? Can they live in sure. separate quarters? Mm -hmm. um, I've also seen it done successfully where, um, if, especially when there's kids involved, um, they alternate and who is the primary parent. So maybe okay. dad has Wednesday and every other weekend and mom has Monday or, you know, just some kind of a configuration where mom is primarily home taking care of the kids and dad then has time to do his recovery work. Mm. And so one person is out of the house. The other person is, is in the house, but mom and dad both get a break to be able to do all the extra self-care that they need sure. when they're going through this crisis. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds like it would be so helpful to be really deliberate about that and what that might look like. And that would take having a lot of teamwork, even in the midst of the trauma, right? right. Yeah. And often couples that are doing a therapeutic separation will still meet and go out on a date once a week to talk, you know, sure. or meet and, you know, they need to negotiate what it is that they want and what it is that they need. And usually it's the partner who's experienced the betrayal that needs to at, say what they need. Okay. 
Okay. And so again, I'm going to ask you to get practical. The people that are going for a date, the person that's been betrayed defines that. What, what is maybe some parameters around that definition? Of a date? Of a date. Yeah. Oh, it's really up to her. Annual. I mean, you know, it's, it's up to her and what she wants. Some women do not want that. Like even the word date makes them want to vomit. And so that's fine. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be that. But just the idea that if she wants to have a touch point or a connection, um, being able to go to dinner, if she's a mom and she's cooking dinner every night, that actually takes a load off of her, gives her a break. And mm -hmm. she gets to enjoy that time of not having to care for children and the couple gets to maybe talk about how they're doing sometimes that's good for couples to just take this topic of betrayal off the table for that date night if she wants to just be able to have a light and carefree evening some women can't stand the thought of that right so every woman is going to be different sometimes it's just we're going to meet once a week at such and such time and he is going to kind of go over his recovery process with her and how he's doing. And she may want to share some of what she's going through with him. So it is so customized to each couple in terms of what they want and need. Mm -hmm. yeah. So instead of a date, you're talking about a meeting right. where it's just an exchange of information. Mm -hmm. um, the kids need to be here. These bills need to be paid, whatever it is. The household needs to run if they're not spending a lot of time together. I think that is it's important mm -hmm. to have that to have a time where it's at least an exchange of information <laughs> like that. And so we, we that's usually, not a date, but a, maybe a meeting. Sure. Uh, partners might appreciate that term instead, and that might feel a little safer too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about what to do when there's a lack of empathy. What else can the betrayer, the addicted do to ensure the healing of the marriage? Mm -hmm. um, did we talk about what recovery really looks like for for Maybe an addicted person? I you would know? love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, what can he do is uh, commit to healing, commit to changing, uh, commit to figuring out why he has behaved this way for so many years. Um, and what's the, uh, the, the real root cause, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like? Um, just just uh, quickly in a nutshell, um, it involves uh, daily work, daily work. Mm -hmm. um, I always recommend a guy see a professional, either a coach or a counselor who specializes mm -hmm. in this particular area of addiction. Uh, because like I said earlier, it can be a little bit different than some other substance abuse and so on. Um, and then, and there's a lot of uh, other, there's several other reasons as well. But um, the idea is uh, seeing a professional at least, at least once a week in the beginning. Uh, some people can afford more, you know, it depends on where they're at financially. Uh, certainly twice a week is even better. Mm -hmm. uh, and then going to a support group. And for, you know, for Christians, certainly um, I am in favor of a faith-based support group. Uh, and some of the reasons for that is, is um, just their, their idea of what uh, sobriety looks like, you know. And so as a Christian man, what does that look like for me? 100% um, of my sexuality uh, belongs to my wife. It, uh, it can only be shared with her in her presence, you know, in the same room physically with her. Um, 
And so uh, that can look a little bit different with other meetings out there, but certainly a meeting like Sex Addicts Anonymous can be helpful. Uh, the, uh, the groups that we started um, are called Men in the Battle, Men in the Battle, and uh, these are faith-based support groups. So going to at least one of those per week, um, and again, going to a couple uh, per week is, is even better. And then spending daily time, you know, as a believer, it would be um, uh, seeking to uh, connect more with God. Even if you feel very distant uh, from God, you feel like, you know, you wonder if he even exists or if he hates you, you know, for the, with the shame that, uh, that we carry, uh, that that can be projected onto God. So trying to, to connect with him, even if it's 10 or 15 minutes uh, in the morning, whatever it is, and spending time reading every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the books, um, some of the books that I recommend for men to start with would be Surfing for God, Surfing like on a surfboard. Okay. Uh, Michael Cusick, Michael Cusick wrote that book. And every guy that I've recommended that to has said it's phenomenal. It's, a, it's an incredible book. And uh, Wild at Heart by John Eldridge has, uh, so, I mean, it's not a book about sexual addiction or pornography or anything necessarily, but it contains all of the, all of the uh, a lot of the reasons why we behave the way that we do. John brings up and, and he talks about it in the book. Uh, and so ma- making those commitments um, is, I think, going to be extremely valuable mm-hmm. for, for his wife. Um, to know like he is doing this work and um, I uh, I shoot straight with guys I just say this is uh, you know none of this is optional don't treat it like a buffet do it all (laughs) do it all Um, the support groups especially uh, and they are so incredibly valuable at men in the battle I've had guys come up to me and say you know in tears uh, for the first time in my life I've been able to be honest uh, with it and and these, this is the, this is the closed group of men, uh, open o- open to new guys, but only open to men who struggle or have struggled with unwanted sexual behavior. So, when you walk into the room, you know that everyone else here has the same issue as you, in varying degrees. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, the idea of being vulnerable and uh, connecting on deeper levels with other men. Uh, stereotypically, we're not good at that to begin with. And so giving this opportunity to have deeper conversations and talk about things that really matter, uh, are, it's, it's, it's critical. And, you know, it really is, um, so many of these things that I'm talking about too, are just, it, it's, it's, it's what everyone really needs to do in, as far as growing and pursuing, just pursuing personal growth, I think is important. And we're, you know, God wired us uh, to be in deep relationship with other human beings. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, uh, it really isn't doing uh, anything uh, outside of what we, what I think a man should be doing anyways, as far as pursuing personal growth and becoming the man that God intended him to be. Yeah. Well, I love that you say, said that because I think it's easy to fall in the cultural belief that that's not necessary if you seem to be doing fine from outside. Mm-hmm. And so this is appropriate for every man and woman out there in their life to be working on and developing who they were created to be uh, fully. Yeah. I love that. Do you ever have a man who um, 
just says, well, I know exactly what shame I'm experiencing. It's my wife. Our whole marriage, she shamed me. Oh, yeah. Mm, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that goes back to the garden, you know, of blaming. And that's yeah. that's what we do as humans. We want to blame other people. And it's just BS. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, there's this thing too. Um, I, uh, we, we have, um, this, the group men in the battle, uh, the one that we run in Carmel, Indiana is, is quite large. We, we had, uh, 60 men last night, uh, six, zero 60. And oh. so we have new guys coming all the time. And, um, so sometimes there are men who, what we call are in denial, you know, they, in other words, they're stuck in a place where they really believe that is true. Mm -hmm. um, even though everyone around them knows it's not, it's right. not true. You know, right. it's not your wife's fault. Um, all of the shaming, even if she is, if she's shaming you, you know, I, I, I tell guys, um, so why didn't you do something about that five years ago and ask to get into marriage counseling, you know, mm -hmm. like, you have a choice too. So uh, this is not entirely her fault. Um, usually I think we marry um, someone that is much like one or both of our parents um, and, or primary caregiver as well. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, a guy can be very, he can be stuck uh, pretty deep in denial uh, because he's projecting maybe his uh, relationship with his mother all over his wife. You know, she's shaming me. Uh, well, what does that remind you of? You know, it's just like your mom, just like your dad, whatever the case is. Uh, so yes, it um, certainly uh, it can trigger a guy to want to medicate um, when someone, if, if a wife is not treating her husband, you know, with love and respect and so on. Um, he may feel more inclined to do that, but um, you have a choice over your behavior mm -hmm. and you need to be responsible for your own behavior. No one makes you look at porn. No one sits down and forces you to do that. Right. So you may not blame that on someone else. Right. Well, and even, um, oftentimes I say is if, if you find yourself in a marriage with a dynamic like that, a good question for yourself is how is it that I married this person? Like, so if, if you married somebody who's shaming, you, you chose them. Why did you choose them? Because yeah, that's probably really where, this, where you need to deal with the shame is why you chose them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So um, I would love, I know we only have a few more minutes and we need to get going, but I would love to hear if you have anything to share, what for the parent Mm -hmm. who finds out that their son or daughter, usually, again, the son, has gotten involved. Not anymore. Not anymore. Girls are the fastest growing group of, uh, the fastest growing uh, segment of the population becoming addicted are uh, young girls, yeah. teenage girls. So for parents, for parents of kids, we start way too young. I mean, sorry, we start way too, too old, old <laughs> wanting to talk about sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, there is a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, and mm -hmm. it's for kids from 6 to 11 years old. It's for parents to read to their child to explain to them why pornography is dangerous and how to deal with it when they see it, not if, when. Mm -hmm. It's inescapable for kids today. Even, even if you don't give your kid a smartphone, do they ever go to a neighbor's house? Do they ever go out on the playground where somebody's going to have a smartphone? Do they ride the school bus? I mean, it's, it's inescapable. So we need to shift 
from believing we need to protect our kids from porn. And certainly we do that. We protect sure. them from seeing things because it is traumatic for children, prepubescent children to see pornography is traumatizing to them. But we also need to equip them of what to do when they see it. So for kids six to 11, good pictures, bad pictures, the authors describe all of this in a very developmentally appropriate way. Um, they also have a blog called Protect Young Minds. Okay. And they discovered six to 11 was too old, Anne. They needed a book for younger kids. So wow. they wrote one for three to six-year-olds called yeah. uh, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. Junior. It's very age-appropriate, too. That may sound very, very young, but, um, yeah, there's a little camera on each page that they get to search for, you know, and what are good pictures and what are bad pictures. It, it's uh, very, very appropriate. And lots of parents think, well, like, gosh, I don't want to give my kid ideas to go looking for this. And honestly, we don't have the luxury of thinking that way because it is looking for them. I mean, the pornography industry is so lucrative and they want to hook kids at young ages so they will have a lifetime user. So that's a first and foremost thing. And then when you do discover like your child or your teenager has been looking at pornography, to have a shame-free zone where they can talk about it, talk about how they feel about it. I would not recommend punishment. I would recommend guardrails, like you would put on a highway to protect and help your children, but lots of conversation, especially if they were prepubescent when they saw it, Mm -hmm. giving them access to a therapist Mm -hmm. who can help them deal with some of the trauma that it probably caused them. And if they are a teen or college student and they do have an addiction at that point, which is often the case, honestly, uh, Fight the New Drug is a fabulous organization that offers a free online recovery program for people in high school and college called Mm -hmm. Fortify. And it's a great place for parents to get educated about the dangers of pornography and why it's addictive and all these types of things. So we also always um, receive calls and emails from parents who have found that their child is looking at mm-hmm. pornography to offer support and help for yeah. the family. And I've, um, I have uh, had many teen guys, um, I've, I've led a couple of groups and we have gone through the same two books that I recommended for, for uh, you know, 16 and older, Surfing for God and Wild at Heart, and they have found it to be tremendously beneficial as well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's, uh, don't react when you find out uh, or yeah, if you, if, freak if you out, discover that'll just light the shame on fire. Yeah. And that's something we've, we've tried to do, um, as we moved into ministry and is, um, have sex be an open topic in our house. You can ask any question, uh, and, and use whatever, you know, kind of language that you feel like you need to, to ask the question <laughs> and we're not going to laugh at you. We're that's not right. going to shame you. I mean, we we're have not going to get angry. An almost 15 year old son and an 18 year old daughter. And literally, we have really open conversations about sex and pornography. Sometimes at the dinner table. (laughs) Sometimes they bring it up at the dinner table. They don't realize that's not typical dinner conversation. (laughs) And it's it's because we started when they were young, you know, Mm -hmm. and we have a seven-year-old too. And we talk to her periodically less frequently than the other Mm -hmm. teens. But yeah, it can become a really natural conversation and shame-free conversation because sex is not shameful. It's a gift. Right. 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 Yeah. Need education in a, in if they're not already addicted. Um, so that's so valuable. And I think when you talk about not 
reacting, you know, but that is, that's the crux of parenting, right? Is mom and dad have to keep their wits about them and not be reactive, but be responsive to whatever they need to, to deal with. So right. I really appreciate so much you taking the time to be here and to share your wisdom. You've given us so many resources, so many words of wisdom.